Hello and welcome to the Barefoot Pause Podcast. This is Season 1, Episode 16, and I'd like to welcome you back. I have noticed that there is a slight delay between Episodes 15 and 16. I had some little glitches there. We're back on track now. Um, Today's episode is going to focus on pressure. What is pressure? What is homeostasis? How can we use it strategically? Um, How can we be aware that we're not using it accidentally? Um, And we're just going to get into some things and uh, kind of elaborate on some misconceptions about pressure, what it is, what it could be, what it should not be. All right, guys, let's dig in. All right, let's talk in with some uh, with a couple of definitions. Pressure, what is it? Pressure is anything that takes a dog away from homeostasis. Now, what is homeostasis? Homeostasis is the optimal or the state of optimal function of an organism. So that's the steady internal state of a being. So in the case of us, it's we hey, we're comfortable, I don't have any pressing needs, I'm quite comfortable to do whatever it is that I'm going to do. And for our dogs, it's it's the same thing. Every organism has a state of homeostasis where all of our needs are met. That must mean then that pressure must yield some sort of a at least perceived requirement for a need. So let's have a look at a, a short list of what could be termed as pressure. And this is not an exhaustive list, but it serves as an idea of of what pressure is. So pressure can be temperature, a a change in environmental temperature. It can change our body temperature. That takes us away from our optimal internal state. So we might start shivering. We might get cold. We might start sweating as we get hot. Hydration. Hydration is a form of pressure without Without water, none of us can survive, so we must remain hydrated. Now, as I become less and less hydrated, and I tend to go towards the more dehydrated end of the spectrum, I can't think properly. I don't have the same strength. I lack endurance. I might start cramping up. I'm not able to think and process things as quickly in my brain. So there's things that happen because of hydration. It's not just a dry mouth feeling. Hunger. If I I start getting hunger pains, means I want to start eating something. I start to get hangry. Blood sugar. If if I'm eating the wrong things, I might have a spike in blood sugar and I start going hypo. Or alternatively, my blood sugars are low and I'm starting to to change my, my physical responses to things. The way I'm dealing with situations can depend on my blood sugar levels, my comfort. Uh, I could, as I'm sitting here now, you'll hear my chair creak as I get myself more and more comfortable. As you're sitting there watching the TV and you shuffle around, or now where the cold weather's starting to come in, you're wearing warmer clothes. You sit down on something sharp, or you twist your ankle, or you crack a nail. There's some pain there, so you do whatever it is to get yourself back towards homeostasis. You touch something hot, you take your hand away from something hot. Light and darkness, if you're going to sleep, you might want to have the blinds shut the lights off so that your body can do its sleep thing. Uh, Maybe while you're working, you need to have like the 1,000 specified lumens so that you can do your fine work. Breathing, perhaps 
It's not something that we necessarily think of too much, but breathing itself. If I'm going swimming, then at some point I'm going to be out of breath. If I'm going diving, I'm literally going to be out of breath and I've got to come back up. It takes practice to get myself into a state of apnea where I can hold my breath for a long period of time. Boredom. I'm sitting here just, I don't know, watching some Netflix and it's the same show that I've watched the last couple of nights and it's really not going anywhere. It doesn't flick my buttons. So what do I do? I watch something else because I want to get back to that steady state and this boredom isn't cutting the mustard. On the opposite end of that, we have excitement. Maybe I'm craving excitement. Maybe there's just too much excitement. The cars are driving too fast. The roller coaster is too much. The scary movie is too scary. Maybe I've just had too many coffees and now everything is overly exciting. I can't sit still. Or even fear. Fear is a form of pressure. There's a, a, I don't know, a spider walks across my desk. I freak out. Or there's uh, one of my kids is playing too close to the road. Things happen and I need to get myself back into a steady state in order to achieve that. I relieve myself of that fear or I overcome that fear, whatever that that fear trigger is. So pressure in itself, when we in the dog training circles start talking about pressure, a large number of people automatically jump to the misuse of tools. Oh, you're snapping a dog on a pinch collar. Oh, you're, sn- you're lifting a dog by a slip collar. Or oh, you are um, whacking a dog with a crop whip. You are stimulating a dog with an e-collar. All of these perceived harmful inputs are used by good trainers strategically to create something that is beneficial. Now, so if you however look from a third party perspective you'll see something and you'll go that to me is foreign it's offensive it's novel that's not something i'm used to so it triggers you and that's okay to be triggered but it's how we deal with it understanding that there are different types of pressure your softest trainer in the world is still at the very least playing around with hunger and boredom because if the dog can't take what you are offering them then we have to put a disparity between them so if it's not hunger or boredom then it's frustration every single trainer is playing around with the homeostatic state of the dog that is yours and that is okay to do so that is by adding pressure we are able to strategically establish a situation where your dog is able to adapt and that means that successful training is occurring when we put too much pressure on we create a flat dog we create a fearful dog we create a dog that or an aggressive dog we create something that we don't want and that is then maladaptive yeah that's that's detrimental and what we're looking at is beneficial training so when we're talking about using pressure we're talking about using it in a strategic sense yeah. So those are our definitions. We're going to start having a look at um, the, the use of pressure. So how can we strategically use pressure to affect desired learning outcomes? Uh, most commonly used are things like comfort, hydration, hunger, boredom, 
and excitement. They're, they're quite common. So let's just kind of unpack those a little bit. Comfort. What is comfort? Well, I might pull the lead forward and put my hand underneath the belly of a dog. And my dog goes, well, I've got to move my head into the, the lead pressure. And I also want to uh, escape the pressure from underneath my belly. So I'll go from lying down to standing up. So now I've changed, I've put in just enough input to create the desired output. When we're talking about these sorts of things, we're still allowing the dog to make a, a cognitive and intellectual decision, but we're pointing them towards a solution. It's still them that make the decision to get to that solution. So if I'm pulling on the lead and my dog is just sitting there taking it, I'll put my hand underneath the belly. Now the dog goes, oh, there's, there are some clues here as to what I'm supposed to do. How do I get at the right answer? Well, lying down is obviously not the desired thing because this is, this is discomforting to me. I don't like this feeling, this sensation. How do I get out of it? Well, I've got to put slack in the lead. That means moving the head forward and I have to remove myself from the hand. That means moving my head forward and lifting my belly up. Therefore, our dog engages into a standing position. So now I've been able to teach just through the tiny little bit of, of guiding leash pressure. We're not pulling them up, right? We're not, we're not just holding onto the lead. We are putting some pressure on, so there is some tightness to the lead, but it's not enough to pull them out of position. That's enough to go, here is a tight lead. Then we put a hand underneath their belly. We're not lifting them up. We might follow them up as a transition into position, but we're not lifting them up. Right? We're not making the decision for them. Neither are we putting enough pressure on for our dogs to resist. So the idea is that we're not creating an opposition to what we're doing. We're creating this is the way to go. Right? So put that into human context. So you're, I don't know, you're walking down the street, you grab your partner's hand and you go, hey, come check this out. Right? It's still their decision to go, hey, yeah, I'm not going to go check that out. That's something that I don't like. They can they can choose to oppose that or they can just choose to come with you. Right? Uh, what I can also do uh, in the case of if you're teaching someone, for example, to lift something heavy from like a deadlift or into a, a, from a squat. Right? So if you're deadlifting, you're lifting up a huge amount of weight from the floor on a barbell and what a coach would do is they would put their thumb and their index finger over the the lower back right and they would say lift my thumb and forefinger up so you have to push against that and the idea is that they're going to give you enough pressure so that there's a little bit of resistance and as you push that up the hand comes off and you'll then be able to keep a flat back and that means that your back is then safe and you're transitioning from a squatted position into a, a standing position with a large amount of weight hanging off of you right there's a lot of different ways of using tactile cues to be able to change the comfort of the student which basically puts them in a position to arrive at the solution that we want which is deadlift the barbell go from down into stand whatever that might be hydration is also one but it's not used very often because it seems to be quite clumsy you can have a, a dog that's quite thirsty and you could get them to work for their hydration uh, they they're going to get it at some point anyway when it 
it's not necessarily existential in that particular aspect, but you can use flavored water. You can use uh, like you could use tuna juice or any fish juice. You could use or, or in fact any sort of meated juice. You could use that, and you could taint the water with it so that it's more alluring to the dog. They'll definitely go for that. That would be an option. You could use hunger. A hungry dog is a motivated dog. So what we can do is we can set. We can go breakfast and dinner sessions. Too easy. For a puppy, they're going to be hungry around lunchtime. So we can we can squeeze in a lunchtime session. We can change the size of the meals so that we can spread the meals out over the day and have three or four training sessions throughout the day. By using hunger, we can now drive our dog into the solutions, the behaviors, the skills that we want based upon their already imbalanced homeostatic state they are hungry they are hangry and now we have food come and get the food from me not a problem now you have to sit to get the food now you have to go find the article to go get the food now you have to jump up on this piece of equipment to get the food you must do this you must do that so on and so forth so our dog is able to then come and and not just get given stuff for free Predators aren't into getting stuff for free. They want to earn their way in life because they're predators. We don't have a say in that. That's the way they're built. So for a predator like our dogs, we can explode that savage code and say, look, I've got the food, you've got the hunger, let's make this work. Boredom is another one. Uh, for dogs that are uh, quite easily aroused, or uh, generally living an overexcited life, a crate is an absolutely beneficial tool because now I can control their access to the world around them and I can set it up so that it's beneficial. Not only do you come away from excitement, which could be overwhelming for you, but now I'm pushing you into being able to deal with being bored. And that's, that's a critical aspect of life. We all need to be able to deal with being bored. But if we are bored, then we are naturally seeking some excitement. So by the use of the crate, if I can crate my dog for 40 minutes through to 90 minutes or whatever, by the time they come out of that crate, their cortisol levels are greatly reduced. So that makes learning far easier in the way that I would want the training done. I want my dog to be looking for solutions into pressured situations. What I want to avoid is a dog that will do the behavior because they fear a greater pressure. Right? So by creating a dog, I'm able to basically compel them into a relaxed state. And when they're in that relaxed state, then I can start to modulate their excitement. I can start to present something that is novel, like myself, like learning, like actually doing something rather than just sitting in the crate waiting for something to happen. Now you get to be an agent of yourself. You get to do things. You get to learn things. You get to be active. And the disparity between active and inactive is heightened in the state of downtime in the crate and excitement time in a session. So that is how I can I can strategically use boredom as pressure. I could also use excitement. If I have a dog that is easily aroused, is readily overexcited, then I might start flipping between excitement states. 
So I might have a flirt pole and I'll get the dog to jump up on things and chase and grab and bite and kill and do all of those sorts of things with the toy and miss and get frustrated and then I'll send them onto a trampoline bed. Now you have to stay there until I can see that you are visually calmer than when you went on. And now I'll get you back excited again. And then we'll continue to flip-flop that so that we have a sawtooth waveform like these massive peaks and these massive troughs. And then we start to spread the time out between those massive peaks of excitement, those massive troughs of calm. And now I have a dog who can self-regulate their excitement, which is huge when I've got an aggressive or a reactive dog or a fearful dog or a nervous dog, even a puppy. Any dog can benefit from being able to self-regulate between excitement and calm. Now, one of the things that I tend to see at daycare is the dogs that come to daycare, that is their everything. And it's overwhelming for some dogs. So by the time they get to daycare, they've, they've blown their top. They know when they're in the road that, that is going to lead them to the drop-off zone. So they're getting super pumped. And by the time they get to daycare, they cannot self-regulate anymore. They are compelled into a state of overexcitement. And looking at previous episodes, we can see the downfalls of that. Overexcitement leads to less cognitive thought. Less cognitive thought means more reaction. More reaction makes more breed-specific behaviors apparent until we get to a point where we have simply canine behaviors apparent, and then we tend to have problems. But if I can teach my dog to self-regulate their excitement, they will get to a point where they will go, oh, this is dopamine excitement. This is cortisol excitement. I need to get myself back down into a place where I am happy being. This is a, a state within excitement that I'm happy to be in. Uh, outside of that, things get sketchy. Not so I can teach my dog through comfort, through hydration, through hunger, through boredom, through excitement, and those are innately done. Think of training on a hot day. You release your dog to liberty, they run over to the water bowl, and they start drinking. Go, oh, well, that is a nice consequence. That is a reinforcer that I want to start using. Now, next time, before I get there to that water, to that liberty section of my training session, I might just cap it off with a heel. Heel up to the water, then I'll release my dog to the water, for example. So, pressure can be used to drive into and away from behaviors. So, pressure can be used to affect a nice, or a nasty output, reinforcement or punishment. Now we're gonna talk about how to affect a nice or nasty output from our pressure. So that a nice is reinforcing, nasty is punishing. So to recap again, nice is anything that builds behavior, makes a behavior more intense and or more frequent. A nasty consequence is a consequence that is then punishing. It, it reduces intensity and or frequency of a behavior. So we have this dichotomy in a, applying consequences. I have the dichotomy of giving or taking. So if you go onto the uh, onto Google and you put in something like operant conditioning, you'll come up with uh, the operant conditioning matrix, which is um, 
pluses and minuses, R's and P's. And basically what it means is uh, we can build a behavior by, by taking something away. We can build a behavior by adding something. We can eliminate a behavior by taking something away, or I can eliminate a behavior by adding something. Right? So that's the give and take for a nice and nasty consequence. Now, I talked before a little bit about leash pressure. Well, that at first glance, you would go, okay, so let's talk about the stand from a down. My dog is lying down in the sphinx position. I apply some forward leash pressure, so in line with the spine and ahead of them. So that is essentially then going to apply pressure, pulling their head forwards in their direction. Now, I'm applying that pressure, right? So you might, you might think that I am giving pressure and that is making my dog stand up, but that's not actually what is happening. Now, what is happening is I am giving that pressure, I'm giving that leash tension, and that is having a nasty consequence on the lying down because it is making the lying down less frequent. I apply pressure, my plus, I then punish the lying down, that my dog stands up, they go with that leash pressure. But what I'm actually doing then is my dog is going, how do I escape this pressure? How do I get out of this conundrum? So I give light enough pressure, subtle enough to be able to make my dog move from a down to a stand. And as soon as they've hit that stand, I can drop the lead. Now that is where the consequence of the stand is being hammered home. It is the removal of leash pressure when my dog has achieved the correct solution, that then is a nice consequence in itself. Because my dog now has reached that state of homeostasis, right? Remember, we're, we're talking about the disparity between homeostasis, a steady, comfortable state, and pressure. Anything that takes away from homeostasis. So my dog is lying down, then in a, a steady state, there's nothing really going on, they're hunky-dory, I come along, grab the lead, pull the lead forward with enough pressure to affect my dog. They suddenly stand up. I let go of the lead. Now they're back into homeostasis. However, they're now standing up. So it is the removal. It is the taking away of, of the leash pressure that is then reinforcing. It is a nice consequence to our dog transitioning into the stand position. Right, so when you're early in your learning path, you would think I am giving leash pressure into the behavior. So that would be in an operant matrix, that would be R plus or plus R. Right? So positive reinforcement. I am putting something on and my dog does what I want. Or I'm putting something on and my dog stops doing what they were doing. That's punishment. My dog goes from a down, I, I, I give something, leash pressure, my dog stops what they're doing, they do something else. But it's that something else is what I'm trying to train, it's that something else that I'm doing. 
Now, so something else then, as soon as my dog achieves that something else, they get relief from that pressure. It's that relief from that pressure. Hey, I have solved the puzzle. If I follow the lead, I make the leash pressure go away. So it is the removal of that pressure, but the pre that then is a nice consequence, okay? So that's how I can drive into behavior. Now, I could also drive my dog away from behavior with a nasty consequence, right? But that nasty consequence is not necessarily going to be quite so subtle because it's a nasty consequence. It's designed to reduce frequency and or intensity of something. So if my dog then is in a down and they suddenly look over and they see a trigger and they go absolutely ballistic, well, I might have to do some defensive handling I might have to perhaps apply a punisher to my dog to be able to get them back into a homeostatic state or back into a more uh, more cultured, more civilized state would be a, a, a better way of explaining it. So I might have to snap that lead with enough intensity to snap my dog's brain back into a social state with me rather than a defensive or an aggressive state with whatever the trigger is. But it's still the same language. It's still the same modality. It's still the same paradigm. It's still leash pressure. So just imagine now you're being spoken to by your boss and he's speaking to you just like I am. It's a conversational tone. Everything's hunky-dory. And then all of a sudden your boss screams at you for whatever reason still talking it's still language it still sounds but the intensity is greatly different and therein lies the rub with pressure it's the intensity of the pressure that i put on that through that through that regulation of pressure i can now mod, i can now decide whether it's going to be a nice or a nasty consequence that i'm applying a quick sharp snap is going to result generally speaking, in a nasty consequence. It's going to be a punishing consequence. Guiding pressure, generally speaking, is going to be a nice consequence. Right? So I might start to get my dog into a front position, and from there I'll use guiding leash pressure to get my dog from the front position into the heel position. So my dog is still able to make the choices, but through leash pressure, I'm narrowing the, the possibilities that my dog has. And they make the right choice and, and they continue to make the right choice. They continue to get paid for it. And through that, I'm building big behaviors. So through that, I'm then able to, so I'm able to drive into behaviors with guiding pressure. I can also drive away from behaviors with intense pressure. Yeah. So think about, um, I think I, I said before, look, look, temperature is a good one. So on a cold day, what will you do with your bed? You'll put a hot water bottle in there. You'll put um, your electric blanket on. You'll put on your favorite winter flannies. You'll wear socks to bed, those sorts of things, right? You, you, you want the warmth. Now, what happens if you go to sleep and the electric blanket stays on? You're going to wake up and you're going to be too hot. You're going to be sweating, right? It's too intense. You turn that thing off. So the next time you go and go to bed, 
you check to see whether the hot water, the the electric blanket is off. Now think about you going into the sun. You go into the beach to work on your tan. You lie there for a little while and you go, oh man, this is really hot. I'm gonna have to go in the water to cool off. So you are too hot. You you escape that heat by going into the water. You cool off. You get comfortable again. You come back out. You start sun baking. You go back into the water when you baked too much. So you can start to then get what it is that you're after through strategic use of pressure. We can do similar things with our dogs, but we need to be able to understand, like, um, if I make my dogs so hungry that they are starving, the proximity to food itself is going to drive them nuts. If I control their food to the point and make things so hard to the point that my dog will never figure out how to get the food, they start to despair. That pressure is too intense. So if I have a dog who is super hungry and they're literally chomping at the bit, they can't contain themselves, then I have to reduce my criteria. I have to reduce my expectations so that they can achieve some goals, get some confidence and calm themselves down and get confident about being able to arrive at the solutions that they need to. Yeah. So hunger is different to starvation. Hangry is different to desperation. One of the great pressures that I like to use in social settings as well as in uh, training settings when I'm able to is the use of spatial pressure. We all use spatial pressure to get what we want in social situations. Um, you can have lots of fun with this at a supermarket or if you are looking for, um, I don't know, some item. Let's just say you, you're going through a clothes shop and you want to buy or have a look at some clothes. So you stand at the same side of the clothes rack as someone else who's looking at the clothes. Guaranteed within 10 seconds they're moving on. That's spatial pressure. If I am, if I've got my trolley and uh, it's half full and I'm walking through Woolies, generally speaking, I have a fairly intense spatial pressure about me. People tend to get out of my way. If, however, I am just kind of dawdling around, I don't have a trolley and I've got my shoulders slumped and I'm just kind of I'm moving around quite inobtrusively, then people are going to be all over me left, right and center because... I'm not exuding that same amount of spatial pressure. Now that pressure in itself can be, sorry, so spatial pressure is when I am displacing my dog from their current position through my positioning. Now, spatial pressure, it can be, it can be suck and it can be blow. I can push away and I can bring to me. Right? So for example, when you've got a puppy and you're teaching them to come when called, what is one of the things that you would prefer to do is you would prefer to get down low when they're coming over to you. You make, your, you make yourself quite small and less imposing and they come running in without a care. But if I stand up 
and I'm looming over them as they come in, then my dog starts to sit further away from me. My dog starts to keep away from me. They might run in circles around me because the area of effect that I'm having with my spatial pressure is greater and that unnerves my pup. So I have to be careful about being too intense with my spatial pressure. So again, I can, I can push a dog away or just by claiming a certain amount of space, by being there. I can pull a dog in by making my, myself smaller, less obtrusive, by turning to the side and being less confrontational. I can also keep a dog quite still by essentially saying, if you go this way, I'm going that way. I know you're going from point A to point B, so I will cut you off. I will go from point C to point B, and it's just the fact that I can get there makes that dog stop. So I can use that in a social setting to ensure that a dog will move away from whatever it is, a water bowl, vomit, poo, toys, another dog, whatever that situation might call for. So in its gross form, I can physically displace a dog simply by approaching them. I can walk up to them. I can walk up to them really fast. I can stand up, puff my chest out, broad shoulders. I can walk on my toes. I have that bounce in my step. I keep my mouth closed. I can even broaden my arms and keep my arms out at my sides to increase the size of my silhouette. If I've got a crop whip or two, I can... I can elongate my arms and that makes me huge that silhouette of space that I'm taking up is massive it's a huge amount of real estate and extremely imposing to that dog and that is going to displace them from wherever they are so let's just say for example um, there's a dog that has just injured themselves they're screaming in pain and I've got to go over there and keep every other dog away I'm going to use a massive amount of spatial pressure to be able to force every dog away because as soon as a bunch of predators go, oh, there's something that sounds like it's injured. They're going to be like sharks in the water and they're going to be circling around going, hey, what's that? What can I get out of this? Because they're dogs and that's how dogs function. So we have to advocate for the dog that has a potential injury. Maybe there's nothing going on. Maybe it's a cramp. Maybe they tripped. Maybe there is a, like a legitimate injury. Things can happen. So... I can physically displace a whole bunch of dogs by having an intense amount of spatial pressure about me. I could also physically displace a dog by retreating, by running away. So when I'm teaching the runway drill, which is um, how we kind of charge our, our appetitive marker, how our, our, we charge our yes, we tend to run away from our dogs with a whole heap of food. So what I'm doing is I'm relieving the spatial pressure. I'm basically sucking our dog into us so that they invade our personal space, they collide with us, and that creates a highly charged environment, which we give a name to. So I can do that with a puppy. I can walk away. I can make myself smaller. I can turn to the side. I can, I can move away from an object so that another dog can come over and take that object. Right, so essentially, if I want to, if I want to refine that spatial pressure, the ability to influence a dog or a group of dogs' movements in a particular setting, I can use gross form, which is just I'm real, I'm hammering like nails home here, like just just 
gross form physical displacement, everybody get away, you get away, or everybody come to me, or you come to me. Doesn't matter whether we're talking about single or multiple uh, uh, students or targets, whatever the case may be, but I'm looking at being able to affect a social group or an individual group for whatever purpose. And I can just use gross form for that and I can get the results that I want. The issue with the gross form of spatial pressure is that it has a large area of effect. So if you're in daycare and you're just you're going after a dog for whatever reason and you're using an intense amount of spatial pressure to drive them away, that has a massive effect on the rest of the yard because then they're all like, oh, I have no idea what just caused that because, you know, why should they? They're not the ones that are involved in this particular event. So they might have been playing and then they see they see me running around with like crop whips held out wide, taking up a huge amount of real estate, creating a massive amount of spatial pressure. They're like, oh, that could come my way. I think I'll just settle down a bit and figure this out. So if I'm using gross form spatial pressure, essentially what I'm doing is I'm affecting the entire yard. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because I might be putting enough pressure into the yard to say we are now capping the speed limit from 250 k's because things are getting super out of hand. We're bringing it back down to 80. All right, so what we can then do is we can establish, hey, look, everybody is going to get some rest right now. I'm making that happen. And through spatial pressure alone, I can start to affect that because there's a ripple effect. If I start doing something to one or two dogs, the nearby dogs start to feel that. Then the nearby dogs start to get the next ripple and so on. So there's a large area of effect. But then that also means that I need to have a fine form of spatial pressure. I need to be able to refine it to a point where I can be more surgically precise. What if it's just one dog that I need to affect and the other dogs are doing just fine? I don't want to put those other dogs into an aversive situation because everything's fine. The, the speed limit is great within the yard. Everyone's working really well together. It's just this one dog has done something that is deemed intolerable. This one dog is suffering in a situation. This one dog is going through an issue that needs external help. Right? Whatever that outcome is, we need that dog to sit and sit down. So what I'll do is I'll start to use fine form spatial pressure. Now, this is where it gets a bit more interesting and, and a, a lot more intricate. And it allows me to put in massive gradients of subtlety. Rather than just being gross with it and charging at dogs, being face-to-face -face and super confrontational, that'll get the job done for sure. But again, it has a large area of effect. If I want to be more precise, or I simply don't need to put that much pressure on to get what I want out of it, then I need to go for this fine form. Now, that means if I'm doing gross form, my face, my eyes, my shoulders, my belt buckle, my feet are all pointing towards the target in question. My knees will be parallel and my center of gravity will be forwards. These are all parts of spatial pressure. These all dictate to the dog in question, which way is old mate going to go? So if my face is looking at a dog, then I'm focused on them pretty intently. If my eyes are focused towards a dog, then I'm even more intent about my meaning. Because now I'm starting to put in a situation of... Look, I am looking directly at you. This is 
a confrontation. My shoulders, how I hold my shoulders, if I slump my shoulders, I'm relieving pressure. If my shoulders are up and wide and I'm standing proud, then I'm increasing that pressure. But I might dip one shoulder and keep one shoulder normal. I might twist my shoulders to the side to relieve some pressure or to yield a choice to the dog to be able to move in one direction or to take a choice away from a dog so that they move that they don't move in that particular direction. So if a dog wants to go left and I and I tilt my shoulders and I twist my upper body around to indicate like I can see where you're about to go and I'm ready to go with you, it gives them a moment of thought. I haven't actually moved towards them, but it's my spatial pressure. I could go in that direction with you. Is that where you want to go? No, that isn't the way you want to go, right. So now I can use my shoulders to essentially point where I want my dog to go by taking away options. The belt buckle is another one where my hips point, my feet will follow and vice versa. So if my belt buckle is pointed to the left and my shoulders are pointed forward, the dogs understand that chances are you're gonna go left because you're your belt buckle, your hips are pointing in that direction. So that's where your legs are gonna go. So again, same as with the shoulders, I could I could have my shoulders and my belt buckle in different directions. I could have my legs pointed in one direction, my shoulders pointed in another, and I, I can now take two options away from my dog, or I can yield options to my dog, whatever the case may be. Uh, the feet are, are another one. I could keep everything straight on with my dog, but point my feet at an angle away from the dog, and that is relieving pressure. Right? Or I'm telling my dog that I'm gonna cut to the chase, I'm gonna go where you think, I'm taking an option away from you. Wherever you think you're gonna go, it's not in that direction. The knees, I can hold them parallel or I can hold them offset. That affects my center of gravity and can make my center of gravity lean forwards more. That makes my spatial pressure really intense. Because if I'm looking like I'm going to come forwards, that means that it's going to take potentially less time for me to get there. Now, that, you think of it like I'm charging into a situation. Or I can keep my knees parallel, I can even lean back a little bit and I'm relieving pressure at that moment in time. The center of gravity is a big one because I can go left, right, I can go forwards, backwards, and again, I can take choices away from the dog or I can yield choices to my dog, whatever the case may be for that moment in time. But if I'm looking at the face, the eyes, the shoulders, the belt buckle, my knees, my feet, and my center of gravity, if I start to think of myself as a three-dimensional object rather than a two-dimensional object, think back to the gross form, where I said you've got a crop whip in each hand, you're holding your hands out wide, you've got crop whips in your hands, so you're taking up a huge amount of real estate, but you're just coming forwards, right? So your face, your eyes, your shoulders, your belt buckle, your feet, your knees, your center of gravity are all coming for the dog and they're all going full on straight in. That means then that your dog is picking up the message loud and clear. If I do the wrong thing, you're charging in at me. That's kind of the point of gross form, spatial pressure. Make the dog stop and stop now. Whereas with my fine form, look, I may be in a situation where a dog has an object that they're not supposed to have and I need to get it back. Or perhaps 
I'm in a daycare situation and the client's dog won't come when called. They don't have a recall. So now I'm going to use spatial pressure to yield alleys to them so that they can go, oh, there's an avenue. Why don't I go that way? And through that, I can filter them down through to reception. Or I can literally take options away from them. The idea of using spatial pressure in this particular situation is to switch a dog from executing a specific behavior and switching them into a social mood. Go back a few episodes and have a look at, have a listen to that episode. Now, what does it look like when my dog is in a social mood? I have to be able to give my dog a way of getting out of the situation. They must be able to regulate the pressure, i.e. they must be able to turn that pressure off in some way. Now, when I'm using spatial pressure, particularly in a daycare situation or any social situation, what I'm looking for is for my dog to result in some sort of a control position, a sit or a down. Uh, they're the most preferable to me. I don't my preference is not to have the dog stand there because one, it can be very difficult to tell with some dogs whether they're standing there and they are frozen. That's, in a def that's a reaction from, that stems from a defensive mood. I don't know whether my dog simply doesn't get the point of what's going on and they're leaving their options open. So if I take one wrong step, they start bolting away. What I really want is for my dog to engage in a social mood. So if my dog offers a sit when I'm applying that fine form or even that gross form spatial pressure, if they sit, then I will reduce or eliminate that spatial pressure. Now, what's happening there is the dog learns that it's, it's not the escape that turns the pressure off. It is the interaction with the pressuree that turns the pressure off. Not just any interaction, but a very specific interaction. Hey, look, I'm paying attention to you now. You have my undivided attention. I think something happened that I need to pay attention to. What was it? And then through repetitions and through just a general regulation of that dog's speed limit, we can then refine and filter their behavior to be more social, or we can just make things happen as we need to. Perhaps, I don't know, they're ripping into a water bowl, and that means that no other dog can eat or drink. Maybe they were about to urinate into the water, well, then no one else can drink. So there are issues where you, can, you might want to interrupt that and go, look, those sorts of behaviors, simply they don't float our boat. And even in a force-free environment, you are able to use spatial pressure quite effectively because it really doesn't have, especially in the fine form aspect, as soon as the dog understands how to achieve the desired solution, you're not chasing the dog around the yard. The dog understands you're coming for me. Oh, dude, yeah, I'm busted. I'll sit down. I'll lie down. And then they'll stay there quite often for a couple of minutes because they understand look, I'm not in... Any, I'm not anywhere near that homeostatic state. I need to get back there. That is what made the spatial pressure happen. So it, it is huge for yard control. If I'm using the fine form, then it has a very small area of effect. The only collateral effect that tends to happen is that as a dog is trying to escape your pressure, 
they will advertently or inadvertently go near another dog and they may feel the effect of your spatial pressure for a moment or two. And that's okay. They'll get over it pretty quick. Most dogs will just simply shrug it off. A few dogs that don't know how to deal with pressure, they go through that particular situation, they feel a third party to the pressure, and then they realize that there's no effect to the pressure. So that builds resilience. Right? But what is important when we're using spatial pressure is that we have a goal in mind, and that is the switch from doing that, that particular intolerable behavior to engaging in a social mood and displaying that by going into a sit or a down. So as soon as a dog engages that sit or down, especially like if this is the first time, as soon as the dog does that, I immediately turn around and walk away. I'll spin on my heels and walk away instantaneously. The dog themselves, they do not need to be calm. They can just slam their butt into the ground. They can still be just as excited. That's a teachable moment. I'm teaching them this is how the yard works when I'm here. I use a lot of spatial pressure. I've come straight at you. You've gone, oh my goodness, I don't think whatever it is that I did should be done again. And they look at me. They come out of their defensive mood. They go into a social mood. They sit and I'm gone. I'm history. You're like, oh, okay, that's cool. So maybe the next time Stu does that, maybe I'll just sit and he'll go away. And as soon as I realize that you understand how to push the button that turns the pressure off, well, now the hooks are in, you're into the next level. Because now you have to show me that you, not just that you can push that button, but also that you can hold that button down. You've got to be able to maintain that position for some time and then I'll go away. And then I'm looking for you to get calm in that position. What you're not allowed to do is push that button, run away and do the same thing again. The speed limit of that particular dog must visibly reduce and then the pressure can get turned off. And for some dogs, they struggle really, really hard with this notion of spatial pressure because at home, they don't tend to deal with that pressure or they're so overwhelmed that they can't, they can't intellectually think their way through that problem. So we might need to put some tactile pressure on. Maybe I put my hand over their hip and I steady their chest and they slowly melt into that sit. And as soon as they're in that, bang, I'm gone. And we, re we repeat that until such times as the dog is presenting that behavior automatically. Like I give spatial pressure, they sit, job done. So again, the gross form is very intense. You will tend to use that when you have some form of aggression that seems to be escalating or play is getting to a point where you need to split both dogs up. You have a resource guarding situation. You have an injured dog. There are things going on where you need to displace a large amount of dogs. Perhaps there's some hustle and bustle at a gate. Dogs are getting overexcited. It's drop-off time. Dogs are interested in what other exciting dog is coming through reception. And you need to use gross form spatial pressure to get them all away from that particular situation so that the other dog can unfettered come through into the yard. But then fine form spatial pressure has a minimal area of effect. There is going to be some collateral effect for sure, but that's easily overcome because you're using the most subtle amount of spatial pressure that you can. It is a lot less intense than the gross form. 
and they each have their their purpose they each have their point and you can do that at home you could do it at daycare um, I probably wouldn't suggest doing it at day parks because if you've got to do it at a, uh, at a day park at a, a day at a dog park um, unless you're a regular and you know the regular dogs that are there and you've got people that are going to be able to back you up you can get yourself into some issues with this if it is a strange dog so let's just say for example you have a stray dog that's come up in onto your property you can use spatial pressure i would recommend to use the fine form because the worst instance there, the idea of using the fine form is to be subtle in our pressure. We are yielding avenues for the dog to go. So we're not cornering our dogs when we're using spatial pressure. They always have an option of escaping. Right, so uh, you could be going after a dog for 10 minutes. At some point they realize your pressure is inescapable. So escape isn't the correct option. That helps them flip out of the bad behavior, the intolerable behavior, and into a social mood. And from there, they enter into things like, well, what do you want? Appease? Do you want me to come up and say hi? Sits? Downs? Like, what is it that you want from me? No dog will disengage from spatial pressure and just carry on as if there's nothing. If that's the case, you're not applying spatial pressure. You're hanging around. Now, with a stray dog, you have absolutely no idea how overwhelmed they are, how scared they are, how aggressive they are, how sick they are, and how much pain they are. You have no idea about their, their physical, mental state. So only use the fine form spatial pressure. Now, again, that allows that dog to always escape and continue to run away. And if that's the case, then look, that's the case. It's if you have an option, if you have the, the capacity to be able to capture that dog, then fine. But you have your own safety to take care of first. That's that's the first aid is credo. It's your own safety first. The person you're helping is secondary. And it's the same thing with a stray dog. But if you can then use spatial pressure to get that dog to sit, and then you get down nice and low. So first of all, you've taken away a bunch of options for that dog. You've helped settle them down. You've given them some options so that they could escape if they wanted to. They realize, oh, you're, you're having a conversation with me, but I don't know how to talk to you. What do I need to do to figure this out? And as soon as they sit, for example, I might just turn to my side. So I'm taking my face, my eyes, my shoulders, my belt buckle, my knees, my feet, my center of gravity, and I'm shifting them obliquely away from the dog. And then I'm making myself really small. That essentially acts like a magnet to the dog and they come into me much more readily. From there, I can grab their collar slowly, strategically, in a situation, in a way that I'm able to defend myself or, or, or get rid of the dog. And then I can put a lead on the dog and we can go from there. But first, I'm going to make sure that that dog is able to remain calm and remain social. Because if I have to do defensive handling, I have to ask the question, can I do this, yay or nay? Because if there's a shadow of a doubt, use gross form and give that dog a, a wide berth and take options away so you can flush them out of wherever they are and get them back out on the street. Get them away from you because you have yourself to take care of first. Doesn't sound very popular, but it is what it is.
we've set the scene quite nicely in, in talking about pressure that I think we've been able to take away some of the cards that a lot of people put on the table. Pressure must be pain. Pressure must be fear. Pressure must be detrimental to the dog. Whenever we're using pressure, we are using it strategically in a way that will ultimately benefit the student dog. Whether it keeps a dog safe and other dogs away from being classed as menacing or dangerous or booted out of daycare or booted out of home, whether that is removing a dog from uh, some 1080 or some other dog's vomit or some poo or a plastic bag or toy or whatever that is, whatever that particular situation, I can, I can defend myself by using gross form spatial pressure. Take up a huge amount of space, make a lot of noise, make yourself big and imposing and a dog will at least pause and give you the ability to either get out of dodge or handle yourself better defensively. Pressure is there so that we can use it as subtly as we need to to get to the end goal. Pressure is a push-pull situation, even luring. Luring where you have food in your hand and you're getting your dog to plug into your hand and you're moving your dog around. You're pulling them with the food. That's pressure. The dog is trying to get to the food. Free shaping where I might have an object on the ground in an empty room and... I'm getting my dog ultimately to pick up that object. So that free shaping, that is still pressure. Asking a question is still pressure because you've got to come to the right conclusion. And what if you're wrong? There's pressure there. So I can use pressure to drive into and I can drive away from behaviors. I can use different types of pressures in different ways to achieve the same end goals so i can use comfort hydration hunger boredom excitement to be able to set up a good training session i can organize and i can strategically influence a group of dogs behavior in a daycare setting by using gross form and fine form spatial pressure now so the idea of pressure is that we are able to establish something that our dog desires, something that our dog needs, and they have agency to go and get it within the confines of that particular session, whether that's agility, tribe ball, whether that's rallyo, obedience, whether that's a bite sports, whether that's um, search and rescue, IRO, whether that's detection work. It doesn't matter what that work is. But that pressure is the motivation into or away from that behavior. Yeah, so I'll have a think about how you're using pressure strategically or accidentally. And what you'll find is that you're using a bunch of it without even knowing about it. Right? So, but if you can be strategic, you'll start listing, hey, when I do this, this happens. Right? So for example, oh, my dog won't sit. So I just kind of lean over them and they sit. That's spatial pressure. Oh, my dog won't lie down, so I just kind of touch them on the shoulders and they lie down. Well, that's tactile pressure. Right. So learn to use the pressure and learn to use it in the most subtle way possible to get the desired end result. Now, this is where I kind of sign off. I've cued the music. It'll be playing. If you want to get in contact with me, you can most certainly do so. Come over to barefootpaws.com.au, have a look at the website and see what's on offer. You can reach out to me personally at barefootpaws at mail.com. You can reach me via email there. 
And you can also come over to the Barefoot Paws discussion group on Facebook. Uh, it's a growing group full of great information. Um, just a great way to connect with people and talk about the podcast. You can talk about anything. You can ask questions, all sorts of stuff. I would love to see you in there. That's me. I'm Stu. And I'll see you in the next podcast.